guess I've really gotten, uh, enjoyed getting to know uh, your pastor, Lucas. He is an equally mediocre uh, pool player <laughs> to me. So we were very good competition at Dave and Buster's, which I understand is his uh, normal haunt. Uh, probably a couple of you have been able to get together with him there. So really enjoy him. Some of you have probably seen or read uh, Victor Hugo's uh, novel Les Miserables, or as we English people call it, Les Miserables. <laughs> the main character is uh, Jean Valjean. He's in prison for stealing bread to feed his own family. And Valjean's plight very much tugs at all of our heartstrings. We know he's wrong to steal bread. But we also feel for him because we know that he's at the end of his rope trying to feed his family. When he's finally released after, I think it's 19 years in the movie, he seeks help at a priest's house only to get caught stealing the priest's silver. But when the police come, something surprising happens. The priest covers for him. He acts like the silver is a gift, and he even gives Jean Valjean some extra candlesticks. The cops are right there, and the priest says, Hey, Jean, you forgot the candlesticks I gave you. Convincing the cops to let him go. And the rest of the story tells the tale of Jean Valjean's moral reformation. He becomes a good guy. He forges himself a new identity as a kind-hearted factory worker with a soft spot for the working-class man during the French Revolution. Les Mis weaves a really poignant story of forgiveness and redemption in the life of a thief. It's also a statement piece, of course, on the perceived need of the lower class to foment a revolution for redistributing wealth much more evenly in society. And that story is so popular that it grossed over $440 million at the box office when it became a movie starring Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman. It's also the longest-running Broadway musical today. And for our purposes this morning, Les Mis shows how we reflect on what God says to us in Exodus 20, verse 15, Thou shalt not steal. We're going to study that commandment this morning and its relationship to God, to Scripture, to the Gospel, to the Christian life, and finally to eternity. So that's going to be really our outline this morning, if you want to keep that brief outline in your mind. Stealing in God, stealing in Scripture, stealing in the Gospel, stealing in the Christian life, or we should say stealing or the Christian life, and stealing in eternity. So first, stealing and God. How does God relate to stealing? Well, of course, God doesn't have to steal anything. God has never stolen a single thing. Because God is the ultimate proprietor. He is the one who owns all property. Everything is His. Because He created it. The psalmist confesses in Psalm 89.11, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it. You have founded them. Deuteronomy 10.14 Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth, with all that is in it. God owns not just the world generally, not just the cosmos expansively, but everything that is in 
the cosmos and in the world. David praises God in 1 Chronicles 29.11 precisely because he owns all things. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Why? For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. God is the ultimate owner of everything. Property is what it is because God is who He is in relation to creation. He created it. And so He owns all of it. Property then is grounded in the distinction between the Creator and creation. And God is the ultimate proprietor, not only of all property, but of all people. Because Scripture confesses in Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You, yourself, friend, belong to God, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't think you belong to God or have not specifically given yourself to God. You belong to Him because He gave life to you. He made you, and so He owns you. And if He has bought you back by redeeming you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, then you are doubly His, first by creation, and then by redemption. He owns you twice. And the reason we need redemption is that each of us has tried to steal God's authority over us. That's our sin. We have tried to consider ourselves as gods. We have tried to say, hey, God, you don't have authority over me. I have authority over me. You hear this all the time, don't you? It's my body. I'll do with it what I want. And so God has a vested interest in buying people back after they have attempted to steal his authority from him. And yet humanity has a vested interest in denying the doctrine of creation precisely because to admit of a creator is to admit you are not your own. You didn't make yourself. You don't own yourself. You are not a self-made man. You are a God-made man or woman, and therefore he owns you. That is why the doctrine of creation is so threatening to us. That is why we spend millions of dollars and devote our lives to denying it. Because if we admit there is a Creator, then we are not our own. God is also ultimate distributor. He's not only the ultimate proprietor or owner, He is the ultimate distributor, the ultimate giver of everything. 1 Samuel 2.7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. That is God's business to distribute wealth, according to the Bible. 1 Samuel 2.7, Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Paul says God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God provides us with those things in 1 Timothy 6.17. James says he is the giver of every good gift. You don't have anything good that God did not give to you. All we have is from God and all other people have is also from God. 
So we cannot steal from other people without misappropriating what is ultimately God's. And without accusing him of mismanaging what is his. Hey, you you gave that to the wrong guy, so I'm going to steal it and give it to myself because I think you should have given it to me. That's what we're saying when we're stealing or when we're envying. And this is why, just briefly, to tread very lightly on political ground here, this is why the human effort to redistribute wealth, well-intentioned though it is, treads on very thin ice. It is humanity arrogating to itself, being arrogant enough to take the authority to itself to redistribute by our wisdom what God originally distributed by His. Do you really think you have the kind of wisdom it takes to redistribute wealth fairly? Do you think any politician has that kind of wisdom? God alone has that kind of wisdom. God distributes wealth. The Lord makes poor. The Lord makes rich. And human ownership, then, is a function of God's image in man. God is an owner, and He has therefore made us in His image to be owners like He is an owner. People own personal property because God made us in His image. He named creation, He named humanity, and He placed humanity as His prince in the world to reign and rule over and steward all things under God's authority and for His purposes. God then is like the parent owner, and we are subsidiary owners underneath God's kind of umbrella holding corporation. Right? It's as if God has spun off as many subsidiary companies as there are people in the world in order to magnify His glory through our industry and stewardship of the things He gives us for His purposes. So personal property is not rooted in political theory. It's not rooted in some ancient social contract that people in the past made and said, okay, we all agree that we'll do this whole personal property thing, and so we just all agree that personal property is a good thing, and so that's why we have it. No, no, no. We have personal property because God is the original owner, and God is the original distributor. We are made in His image. He made us in His image to own and steward things like He owns and stewards things. So it's really rooted, personal property is rooted in the doctrine of creation. In God's ultimate ownership of all things and in God's mandate for humanity to rule the earth as God's visible representatives. In short, stealing is wrong because God owns all things and because He distributes all things for us to own and use as a reflection of His glory and goodness. That's why stealing is wrong. And that's why he says it's wrong. Secondly, stealing in the Old Testament. Stealing in the Old Testament. The command against stealing occurs in Exodus 20, verse 15, and in Deuteronomy 5, verse 19. In the context of all Ten Commandments. That's where it happens. And in Leviticus 19.11, in the context of civil and social ways in which Israelites were to love their neighbors as they loved themselves. And the general command, do not steal, gets applied in specific laws and showed what was forbidden in the command, but also what was required. So in Exodus 23, verse 4, here's one way that the law against stealing gets applied in Israel. If you meet your enemy's ox, not your friend's ox, your enemy's ox, or his donkey going astray, 
you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under its burden, exhausted, you shall refrain from leaving him with that burden, you shall rescue it with him. Hmm. That's an application of the eighth command against stealing. Now notice, it did not say, if you meet your enemy's ox going astray, don't steal it for yourself. It doesn't say, look, as long as you don't steal your enemy's ox, you're obeying the eighth command. It doesn't say that. That's what we want it to say. That's what we often assume we're doing enough of, not taking other people's things, right? But the law says, do more than that. It doesn't even say, tell your enemy his ox is in trouble and let him take care of it himself. It doesn't just simply say, leave your enemy's ox alone, don't torment it. It says, bring it back to its owner. Rescue it for your enemy, for the person who hates you. Again, it's not, do this for your mother, for her ox. Do it for your wife, do it for your husband, do it for your favorite son. Do it for your daughter. Do it for your good friend. Do it for your pastor, if you like him. Do it for your enemy. It's also commanding generosity. So, in Exodus 23.4, stealing, the command against stealing, is really fulfilled in bring back your enemy's property to him when he loses it. It's telling me to protect what belongs to others and positively restore it to them even when it's my enemy. Whenever it's in my power to do it. It's also commanding generosity. Leviticus 19, 9-10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you're out there in your combine, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. What? That's not very good stewardship. I should reap it all. You don't want to waste corn. Moron. No. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. That's how you're supposed to love your neighbor. Don't reap your fields all the way to the corner. That's about property. It's an application of the Eighth Command, which itself is repeated in the very next verse in Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal. But again, it doesn't just tell us not to steal someone else's gleanings. Don't go reaping in someone else's field on your own business. Keep to yourself. Provide for yourself. No, no, it requires us to share our gleanings and not to spend every dime we have or max out our resources on ourselves and our family. tells us we should leave some of what, it's got, what God has given us in order to give it to others. It tells us that there should be a little wiggle room in our budget every month to give, to be generous, to be kind. It tells us penny-pinching is not necessarily godliness. 
leave some grapes laying around for people in your house, in your field. That's what it means to really obey the Eighth Command. Don't steal. So it's no use patting yourself on the back because you have never shoplifted at Walmart. Nor can you congratulate yourself as a good steward when you save and spend everything but share nothing with anyone who's not related to you. So do not steal does mean do not steal. And it means give generously. Exercise hospitality. Share and look out for other people's stuff so that when they lose it, you can bring it back to them. Care for other people's stuff, not just your own. Even when they're your enemy. But again, it's not just other Old Testament laws that expound the Eighth Command. It's Old Testament stories that explain and illustrate it. Jacob stole Esau's birthright, stole Laban's sheep. Laban, in return, stole 14 years of Jacob's life. Joseph himself was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Achan stole forbidden gold in Joshua 7.11. Israel had sinned. They had transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. When Nathan confronts David about sleeping with Bathsheba, he uses a parable about a man who had many sheep stealing a poor man's only sheep. That's what David did when he stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, his only one. When Ahab stole Naboth's vineyard, it was one of the many reasons that God would evict Israel out of the promised land. So much of the Old Testament history is really a narrative telling, an exposition of how Israel was disobeying the Ten Commandments, why they got kicked out of the promised land to begin with. God said in Jeremiah 7, 9 through 10, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and then come before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? God doesn't like it when we come to church after having stolen other people's things and justified ourselves for it. He doesn't like that. He doesn't receive that kind of worship well. He doesn't receive it at all. Hosea 4.2, there is no faithfulness or kindness, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. In Malachi, the prophet accuses the people of stealing from God himself by refusing to give the full tithe. And God even calls false teaching stealing his words in Jeremiah 23. Proverbs expounds the truth of the Eighth Commandment, not from Scripture itself, but from experience. Proverbs 9.17, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten secretly is pleasant. There's a pleasure. There's a pleasure in theft. There's a secrecy to it. Proverbs 10.2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Proverbs 11.18, the wicked earns deceptive wages. Proverbs 20.17, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Think about chewing gravel. That's what God says it's like to steal and try to enjoy what you have stolen. So we need to ask, what counts as stealing? Have I done this? Have you 
done this. If you're like me, you assume you have not. I don't steal. I'm not a klepto. I don't shoplift. I'm not addicted to stealing. I earn my own living. I eat my own bread. Okay. One theologian neatly categorized theft in terms of either force or fraud. Those are two kinds of stealing, either force or fraud. So there's the classic smash and grab, pickpocketing, shoplifting, human trafficking for the purposes of either forced labor or forced sex. Day laborers in the Old Testament times, even New Testament times, were protected by the law in Deuteronomy 24 against withholding a man's wages overnight. Since often those day laborers lived hand to mouth on wages they earned day to day. So employers were not supposed to withhold their daily wages. But aside from force, there was also fraud, often referred to as unjust weights and measures in the Old Testament, used by merchants to cheat customers by making them think they were getting more product than they actually were getting. Unjust weights and measures. So you rig the scale, you put your product on there, and you say, hey, you're getting, you're getting 10 pounds of wheat, when they're really only getting 7 and a half. They're getting charged for 10. Fraud. Stealing. In Deuteronomy 19, well, that would be called false advertising in our day, wouldn't it? False advertising. This is, this is what it's not. Deuteronomy 19.14, Israel was forbidden from moving boundary markers so that land would not be stolen from its rightful owner. Embezzlement counts as fraudulent stealing, misusing company resources for personal gain. Cheating on our taxes is stealing what we owe to the government by law, even if we disagree with how much that should be. Charging exorbitant interest, especially on the poor, is theft, according to Exodus 22. And stealing can be very subtle, can't it? Stealing can be very subtle. One theologian mentions what he calls depraved ease. And those who in their professions and ministries are negligent, who unjustly steal the wages allowed to them, performing lazily and imperfectly the work entrusted to them. Now, have you stolen Plagiarism steals other people's words. Cheating steals their ideas. Slander and gossip steals people's reputations. Have you stolen anything ever on this definition? Third, stealing in the gospel. Stealing in the gospel. Theft is the whole reason we need the gospel in the first place. The first sin was theft. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve took what God had not given to them. You can eat freely from any tree in this garden. Don't eat from that one. That tree is not yours. That's mine. Knowledge of good and evil belongs to me, not to you. I'm your dad. That's mine. I will decide what is right and wrong. You do not get to decide that for your own. You will not know what to do with that knowledge. We stole it. 
Now we don't know what to do with it. And that first sin changed human nature such that Jesus can say in Mark 7.21, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So you don't need a TV program. You don't need a bad neighborhood. You don't need bad government to make you want to steal. Jesus says, you want to steal because it's in your heart to want what has not been given to you. It's our hearts, all of us. Theft is itself an anti-gospel. It takes people, things, money, or ideas for yourself that do not belong to you. Stealing reverses the gospel, doesn't it? Because the gospel is Jesus giving away what is rightfully His. Giving Himself to people who had no claim on Him at all. Had no reason to deserve or expect that kind of gift from Him. Stealing makes other people poor so that we can become rich. But you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, that though He was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel. Instead of giving self for the good of others, stealing grasps the good of others and consumes it for self. But the gospel is the story of Jesus refusing to take advantage of what was rightfully his. Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, stolen, embezzled for his own personal use. But he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. In theft, self is served by taking from others. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Theft tries to find life in taking other people's things. But the Gospel is the story of Jesus giving His life away voluntarily. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, Jesus said. You didn't have to steal Jesus' life in order for him to die for you. He gave you his life of his own accord. When he gave his life, the authorities came after him, remember, with clubs and swords as against a robber. Matthew 26, 55. They treated him as a thief. When the crowds were given a choice between freeing Jesus or freeing Barabbas, they cried out again, not this man, not Jesus. We don't want you to free Jesus. We want you to free Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Jesus was crucified between two robbers that a third robber, Barabbas, could go free. And in fact, we are each that robber. Because Paul says in Galatians 2.20, Jesus loved me. And gave himself for me. I'm the robber that gets to go free. The good news is that we don't have to steal our salvation. 
Adam stole what God had not given him. But in Jesus, as the second Adam, God gives us back what we would have inherited if Adam had obeyed on our behalf. Right standing with God, the riches of God's glory, and eventually the whole new heavens and the new earth. All as a free gift to those who believe in Jesus Christ and repent of their thieving ways. Romans 5.15, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. We don't have to steal our salvation. You don't have to pull the wool over God's eyes. You can't do that anyway. We don't even have to earn our salvation because God gives it to us. Ephesians 2, By the grace you were saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift. It is the gift of God. Not something you have to angle for. Not something you have to steal. Not something you have to deceive God into giving you. Because you know you're, not, you're, you're something that you're not. You come clean before Him. You admit, look God, I've stole, I've tried to steal your authority over me. I've tried to steal your glory. I've tried to steal all the credit that you alone deserve for creating me and sustaining me. And I've tried to steal other things. I need you to save me from my love for what you have given other people. I need you to save me from my resentment at giving other people things that I want and you haven't given me. Fourth, stealing in the Christian life. Stealing in the Christian life. Stealing reveals misplaced values. You're valuing something that really isn't that valuable. Not valuable enough for you to steal it. Not in God's eyes. The gospel reorients our values. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a jeweler who sells everything to buy a priceless pearl. He doesn't steal it. He sells everything to buy it. And as Christians... We're no longer thieves. Instead, we sell what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. To do that, to treat the reign and rule of God in your life, to treat the realm of heaven as our great treasure, we have to trust in God's provision, don't we? You can't live like that if you don't trust that God knows better than you do. That is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he says again in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you so that you don't have to steal them. Because God knows what you need, and He is more willing to give them to you than you are to steal them. Seeking God's rule in my life slowly kills the desire and even the need to steal. For those who trust in God's provision, there's no need to cheat on your taxes or to embezzle from the company or to steal other people's reputation or engage in false advertising. There's no need for you to do that as a Christian because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all that He has is yours And if He has given to you freely His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, then do you not think He is willing to give you freely all other things that you need? 
without you having to steal them. Stealing seeks life and self-indulgence. Jesus says, though, to seek life and self-denial. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, not indulge himself. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Stealing is afraid to lose its own life. People who steal are afraid to find their life by losing it. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Stop seeking all those other things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. Paul told the church at Corinth that instead of going to court to recover what was theirs, why not rather suffer wrong? There were people in Corinth in the same local church suing each other. And Paul says, look, forget it. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather lose the lawsuit? Why not rather just say, okay, you can have it, whatever it is. I know you stole it. So what? Would you be willing to say that? If someone in this congregation stole something from you, and you knew it and everybody else did too, would you be willing to say to yourself, why not just rather be defrauded? I forget about it. So they stole a couple hundred bucks. So they stole something that was worth $1,000. Is it really worth it to go to court for that? Even when we have things on the up and up, we don't find our lives in them. As Jesus says, Luke 12, 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not enriched by how many things you have. And husbands, Jesus' example of self-giving as the gospel opposite of stealing has special relevance for us. In Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her. That, husband, is how you are supposed to love your wife. Not by wringing everything you can out of her, but by wringing everything you can out of yourself to give to her for her holiness and growth and grace. Because the gospel is wrapped up in Jesus becoming poor so that we might become rich, we should become cheerful givers ourselves. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. The opposite of stealing is not leaving everybody else's stuff alone. The opposite of stealing is working for a living. And working not only to be independent, but working to have something to share with others who may need to be dependent on you. That's the opposite of stealing. That's what it means to obey the Eighth Command. Work to have something to share with anyone in need. The command against stealing doesn't mean that it's wrong to have money or enjoy what money provides, but it means not setting our hope on such things. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18, as for the rich in this present age, Paul says, he doesn't say, charge them not to be rich. He says, charge them not to be proud nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
Not finding their life in hoarding things for themselves, but finding their life in giving things away for the sake of the kingdom and its priorities in other people's lives. Theft is really the ultimate indicator of discontentment, isn't it? If you're a thief, you're discontent with what you have or what you don't have. Are you content with what God has given you? That's really the ultimate question that the Eighth Commandment is asking you. Are you content with God's distribution to you? Or do we think we deserve to be the beneficiaries of a great redistribution of wealth? Many, many professing Christians pride themselves on what they consider to be their external conformity or obedience to the, ten, to the Eighth Commandment against stealing. As long as they haven't robbed a bank, stolen some old lady's purse while she's crossing the street, they're self-satisfied. <laughs> Got that one done? <laughs> Check it out. But if we look our nose down at other people when we see them living on government handouts, for example, or looting the stores during race riots that we see on CNN and Fox, then Paul the Apostle still asks us from Romans 2.21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Do you steal time from your employer? Tax from the government? A reputation from other people? Ideas or words from other people at school or work? And have you not only refrained from stealing in all of those ways, but have you also taken positive steps to show concern for other people's things, even when those people are your enemies who hate you? Have you done that? Do you have any margin in your personal budget for generous giving to those in need? Or do you reap your field all the way to its edges, month after month after month after month, saving and spending everything on yourself? See, being reminded now of the depth and the breadth of what it means to obey the Eighth Commandment against stealing in all its fullness. Do you steal? Now, nobody wants to have to answer that question. We're all probably a little bit uncomfortable right now. That's an uncomfortable question to ask yourself. I get it. But now is the time that we have to ask ourselves those kind of uncomfortable questions because Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John all testify that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And while people are saying, there is peace and security because I reap my fields to its edges. Then sudden destruction will come upon them. But we, as Christians, are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where there will be no thief to break in and steal. Which leads us to our fifth and final point, stealing and eternity. Stealing and eternity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.10 that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says that in a list of all sorts of immoral kinds of people. Thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God any more than drunkards or those who practice sexual immorality. 
unrepented cheating on your taxes, false advertising, time-stealing, embezzlement, other white-collar, respectable ways of stealing can keep you out of heaven just like unrepented homosexual behavior can, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.10, because Paul puts those sins all in the same list. Charles Hodge of Old Princeton said, even back in the 1800s, that many who have stood well in society and even in the church will be astonished at the last day to find the word thieves written after their names in the great book of judgment. And he was saying that in the 1800s. I pray that's not you, friend. Now that is eternal perspective and motivation based on warning. That's Paul and Jesus, John, Peter, all warning us as Christians, hey, hey, don't think that you don't need to be careful not to steal just because you hang out with a bunch of moral people and come to church every Sunday. You need to be careful not to steal. There's a warning there. There will be plenty of former thieves, repentant thieves, reformed thieves in heaven, but there will not be a single unrepentant thief in heaven. But there's also a positive motivation based on eternal perspective, not to steal. Paul says in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. Inheritance. We don't steal time or embezzle money or work at work because we know that we will soon inherit the kingdom prepared for us by our Father. The man who has an inheritance waiting for him has no reason to steal. Think about this, friend. What if your dad is 89 years old and he's about to die and you know exactly what's in his will and it's all coming to you and he's rich? Why would you ever steal anything? That would be stupid, classically stupid, biblically foolish. In Christ, we inherit everything that Adam lost. The Spirit is the down payment, the earnest of God's commitment to giving us all that belongs to Jesus. Everything that belongs to Jesus comes to us when we give Him our sin. And the physical inheritance is the new heavens and the new earth. And the spiritual inheritance is even better because it's God Himself. He is our portion, and He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, Christian, for you. So why would you ever steal anything? It's all coming to you. Again, Charles Hodge once observed that good men are sometimes heard to say, we will take all the law that will give us. We will take all that the law gives us, the human law. Which only amounts to saying that in matters of property, they will make the law of the land and not the law of God the rule of their conduct. But the right of property is not found in the law of the land or in any explicit or implied contract among men. It is founded upon the law of nature or creation, God's creation of all things and our creation in His image. 
Property is sacred, Charles Hodge said, not because in our opinion it is a useful institution and hence approved by God, but because God has said in the Bible and says in every man's conscience, thou shalt not steal. There is grace in the gospel for the modern thief, for you and for me. Just as there was grace for Adam as the original thief, and just as there was grace for the thief on the cross. But it is that same grace that tells us now, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's pray together.